Welcome to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the voice of the Boilermakers, Larry Clisby. Episode 20 here on the podcast, and today we are very fortunate to welcome in the our head track and field coach, Lonnie Green. Um, coach, one of the reasons we wanted to get you on here, uh, you guys are fresh off a Big Ten championship on the women's side, so congratulations on that. Thank and, you so uh, much. Welcome to the podcast, and, and let's start there. Let's talk about... Uh, Let's talk about the weekend and, you know, the talk us through that weekend and then the fact that when it's all said and done, you guys are holding a trophy above your head. Yeah, you know, you know, one of my goals, to be honest with you, was uh, to try to win one or both of the genders within my first cycle, you know, and um, and uh, as I tell, I tell Calvin all the time, I don't consider the first year a part of the first cycle, you know, just because we had to clean the house, you know, we had to get things in order and... Um, so one of my goals was to, to try to win one or both, and um, uh, to see it come together. You know, um, this past weekend was was real, real gratifying. Um, I thought we had a great shot two years ago indoors, slipped away from us in the second to the last event. Then this indoor season, you know, we lost by two points, two and a half points to Penn State, and it slipped away. And then this time, you know, I told him I thought I thought we had the group. And, you know, and I even told Calvin those that I say we got the group. We just got to go out and execute. We got to finish. We can get there, but we not we're not finishing, and and that's what we did. They really really did a good job. It got to the point where we didn't have to compete in the last two or three events, and the meet was already over. Oh, that's we, a great we, feeling. We finished it. We finished it though. Yeah, that's a great feeling. And I and I think our program can somewhat relate. I know when Coach Painter got here, um, you know, unless you're, it's very rare you're taking over a program where the deck stacked for you. You know, most of the time you're coming in, you're building. Yes. And I remember when, you know, Coach Painter's first year, the program had had some injuries in the past and uh, a lot of roster turnover. And so it takes a while, and it takes a while to learn to win. And I think one of the things, um, just being around you over the last few years and the energy you bring and that culture, I know that word gets used a lot in coaching, but that's got to be where it all starts. Before you win a championship, you got to get the culture right. That is true. That is so, so true. You know, I think it's a, a culture of, of expectation, a culture of work, you know, work ethic. You know, I think, you know, uh, it was just a matter of, I think it was a matter of us changing the minds of the young people that was who we inherited, but also, you know, recruiting some kids who would buy, buy, you know, buy into the vision that we had and taking it and run with it, you know. And I, I think that was the biggest thing for us, just getting kids to come who who, who wanted to be successful in the, in the process, wanted a world-class education. Right. You know. Right, that's and that's a big piece. So when you when you go out to recruit young men and women, and talk a little bit, about, I guess before we get to that, let's talk a bit about too. So you you oversee both programs, men and women here. I do. And talk about that dynamic. Um, it's almost like you're kind of a CEO of the Trek Corporation. So you know what I mean, so to speak. Um, talk about that. How the fact that you have two programs under your belt, basically. Well, you know, it's. I think you have to look at it like this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think you have to look at it like this. Um, you play to your strengths. You recruit to your strengths. Um, you know, in, in the sport of track and field, a, a track and field program is going to look like the head coach. And when I say that, if they're a distant-minded coach, the program is going to be a distant-minded program, a distant-focused program. If they're a ballistic-minded coach, you know, like I myself, the program is going to be ballistic-focused. And um, but I still. Uh, you know, when we go out and recruit, we, we, we recruit to our strengths. I think one of the mistakes that's made in the game is everybody trying to have this holistic approach. Um, but that's that's almost, it's, it's, it's becoming impossible 
with the limitations in scholarships that we have. So I think you have to find your niche and then work the niche in this sport, in the sport of track and field, and then try to spin that up to get you to the point of winning a Big Ten championships or being a, a top 10 or top 15 uh, program within the country, within the NCAA. So when we go out, we, we, we recruit to our strengths. And then the other events, for example, let's say the distances, for example, um, those are the support cast to the program. Whereas if I was a distance coach, the ballistics would be the support cast to the distance group. You see what I'm saying? Right, the distance right. group would be the nucleus of the program. But I, I, I struggle with that and with, with some of these programs in the Big Ten because, you know, because we're in the Midwest, everybody says, well, you can't find ballistic kids. You, you can't get them to come to the, mid, the northern Midwest or whatever you want to call it, the southern Midwest. I beg to differ. There are young men and women out there who want a Big Ten education, a Purdue education, or a Michigan education, and they will come to, and they're ballistic kids, and they will come to the Big Ten. Um, but again, it, that, that let me put it like this. You got 21 events in track and field. Mm-hmm. Four are distance orientated. If you give the group the 800 meters, so let's say five. So now you're looking at 16 speed and power events. Why are you putting most of the money in five events at 39 points per event? And you got 16 over here. 16 is low-hanging fruit in my mind. Maybe that might not be worth peanut butter nor jelly. You know, but at the end of the day, everybody's fighting for these few points over here and all of this over here is is available. Right. So thus, that's what we did. We just went opposite of the league. And we found growth in that. That's a good, that's, and for people who, a lot of people listening to our podcast, you know, maybe they've started listening to this because of, of mainly because, basketball. Well, May, well, no, well, mainly because of me and you. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt. And then basketball. And then basketball, yeah, secondly. Yeah. So, I, what I wanted to do too is, and I think it's interesting to hear some of this. And I'm, you know, I know you fairly well just from, you know, working with you in the department here, but I don't know the ins and outs of track. And one of the things I wanted to touch on today was what's some, ballistic mean? What? Ballistic. You were talking Meaning about speed and power. You speed know, and sprints, power. The sprints and jumps. Because so normally when I hear ballistic, that. Hey, someone went ballistic on me. Yeah. <laughs> Blew up. Wanted to punch me out. So, yeah, you know, I've been around sports my whole life. But yeah, cool. Well, and that is a there's a there is a misconception about that that Midwest is you know even in even in like the football programs you know they say well great linemen play at Nebraska and Ohio State and Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin yeah, linemen yeah. but they don't have any athletes on the wings or out you know mm-hmm. things like that so that's a that is a misconception. It's interesting to know that it just doesn't happen, and it happens across the board. Apparently, yeah. not just in you know uh, one or two specific sports. So, um, before we started taping here, we were talking. You and I were talking about the fact that in in sports like football, men's basketball, you have a full scholarship. So anybody that you sign in men's basketball, for instance, we have thirteen scholarships. Uh, anybody on scholarship, it's a full ride. Books, everything's paid for. Not this. Not the same way in track. Um, you guys are able to split scholarships. You basically, at the end of the day, you have a, a certain amount on the women's side, a certain amount on the men's side. But it's up to you to kind of split those up. And I mentioned to you that I've always looked at that, that ability to do that. It puts you in a role, almost like a GM of a professional team with a salary cap. So if your sport, I don't know what you, I'll let you explain how what your cap is on each side. But if you have nine scholarships to divvy up, that's your salary cap. And now you go to work and 
divvy it out how you see fit. That is true. I mean, on the women's side, we have 18 scholarships. On the men's side, we work with 12.6. And we're known as, as an equivalency sport. So we would take maybe some institutional aid if it doesn't count against us. Um, and, and, and institutional aid is anything that requires a GPA or and a test score. Anything other than that, it counts against our cap. Okay. So if we, we, we run into a John Doe and or John or Jane, however you want to call it, um, and we say, hey, you know, we, we would like to offer you 50% to come. We'll take your financial aid and we'll package that with maybe uh, a need-based institutional aid. That need, that part that he or she gets from the institution counts against us. As okay. If a GPA and a test score is not the requirements for for that for that, that aid that he or she is getting. So what that does, it causes us, every track coach in America, to be creative. Yeah. You have to be creative. And again, it goes back to you have to find your niche. And then you have to work that niche. If it's distance, so be it. If it's distance and throws, so be it. If it's sprints or ballistics and throws or ballistics and, 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 and distances, then that's what you do. You work that niche, especially on the men's side. There, In my mind, there is no way you could truly be successful with 12.6 scholarships with 22 disciplines in the sport. So what you have to do is find a niche. For example, let's use Texas A&M, let's use Florida, let's use Arkansas, those schools that are traditionally track and field powerhouses. They, they, come, they come to the national championships year, year in, year out, and they're vying for the trophy. Um, they got a niche. They either sprinting or they're running distances. You know, they find the niche and they work that on that level. Um, um, but to come in on, with, with 12.6 scholarships and say, okay, we're going to have a, a, a comprehensive approach, you're, that's not a recipe for success. You're going to be in the middle of the road every time, and then every now and then you catch lightning in a bottle and you'll win it. Right. So, so does every program have the same amount of scholarships, or is it different with different programs? It, in the, let, let's say the Big Ten. I think every Big Ten school is fully funded. You know, I would think being a Power Five conference – I would think every institution in this league would be fully funded in terms of 18 and 12.6. And even with the women at 18 scholarships, you still um, you still have to figure out your niche. You still have to figure out uh, what works best. You know what I mean? Um, but when you if you look at the teams that are winning national championships, they're doing it with speed and power. Mm-hmm. Speed. I, I, I have this adage, and I've had other friends in the business that say this, speed and power wins championships at the end of the day because there are too many ballistic events in comparison to distance events. Yeah. You know, you, you come with four, with, with, with four guys in the distances, I mean, four or five events in the distances, and since the Big Ten put a limitation on the number of people we can compete, so there's four kids per school, per institution, per event, and I come with four per institution, per event in the ballistics, we're going to beat you every time. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just the, 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 the crux of it, you know? But again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, because we're in the Midwest, we've developed, oh, in the Midwest, we can't get sprinters, we can't get that. No, because here's the deal. Michigan is producing great sprinters. Indiana, we're producing, the high schools are producing great sprinters. Um, Illinois is producing great sprinters. You know what I mean? Wisconsin are producing sprinters, but they're allowing the southern schools to come up here and bring them south, and we keep only the kids who can become distant runners. This isn't a knock against distance kids, but... But when you look at the programs that are successful on a national level, and even in the Big Ten, they're doing it with speed and power. Did you know? Did you know recruiting wise? Did you know much about Indiana or the Midwest before arriving here, or has there been things that you've learned since you've gotten here in terms of recruiting? I knew some. I knew quite a bit, but I've learned a whole lot 
of uh, about Indiana, about recruiting the Northern Midwest. You know, I mean, we when I was an associate head coach at Arkansas, we came, we went to Michigan quite a bit. You know, we figured, you know, the, the young young man or young woman up there. Um, you know, they're sprinting in cold weather. We figure we can get them down south. See, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> you know, now he's defeating you know, his own purpose. They, 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 they go crazy. You know, so so. But I, I knew that coming in. So I figured if we can get the kids to stay home, mm-hmm. if we could get them to stay home, if we can get the Indiana kid. There's a young woman out of uh, Pike High School right now. She's the number one quarter miler in the country. Lena Irby, an outstanding athlete, but. The SEC schools, the Southern schools came up here in droves to recruit her. Our objective was to try to keep her home. I respect that she's going down south because I think she would be successful anywhere she goes. But that's the key for us, for those of us here in Indiana and, in, you know, close to Illinois, et cetera. The key is for us to be able to keep those young people right. home. Yeah, we that's faced, where there's power. Yeah, we face you know? that same thing, yeah. and it's one of those things where... You uh, do it with brochures or marketing. What you do, <laughs> when you're on that trip to Hawaii, yeah, you, you, <laughs> add, you take a couple of those pictures that you really well do, and then you send them to the young lady or guy, right? And, and then they look at it, and you say, this is where you really want to come, Purdue. And they always say, Purdue. I always thought Purdue was an Ivy League school. Maybe it's down south. Don't tell them where it is. <laughs> and then... Uh, until you have to bring them on campus for the visit, then I don't know what you do. But <laughs> well, but how do you that name the the Purdue name? I think, and we've heard this a lot, and I think our fans have heard this a lot. But it's kind of uh, I know Coach Tiller back in the day in football used to always talk about that when the, when you move further outside the Midwest and you bring up Purdue, it almost like it's almost like it's got more um, power outside of the of the state because people when you hear the name, it's like a it just seems like an exotic Ivy League kind of place. Mm-hmm. And and have you found that to be the case when I've, you move I've, away from the Midwest? I found that to be the case. I mean, Purdue, the first thing they think, they think engineering. They think, you know, high or world-class education. They think, you know, they really think we're an Ivy. You know, which I, in my mind, <laughs> we are. Right, you know what I mean? Right. But, um, but, but, it's, but the institution itself is respected worldwide. I had a, I have a good friend who was a, one of the vice presidents of Walmart and was in, did a stint in Bangalore, India, for about three years for the company, and his wife Diana was out shopping, and she found a tennis outfit, you know, the women would wear, and it had Purdue Boilermakers, and she took a snapshot of it and texted to me and my my wife and myself and said, "What would you think? I'm in Bangalore, India, shopping, and look at this—a Purdue tennis outfit. I'm gonna buy it too, and I'm gonna rock it. You know wow. what I mean? Wow. You know, if, you know, you know, even in the Bahamas, even in the Caribbean, West Indies, you know." The, the the academic reputation of the institution precedes itself. I mean, it goes way before. It, it, it causes people to stop and pay attention. You're a Purdue grad. I walk through airports going to recruit over with my family, and people, oh, you're a Purdue Boilermaker. Engineer, huh? And I'm like, no, I'm not an engineer. I didn't graduate from Purdue. I work there, you know? Right. And um, they'll be like, wow, great school, great institution. You know, the, the school's got a, a worldwide, worldwide respect. I do just the opposite. I tell them, yeah, I went to Purdue. <laughs> I'm, a Kent, I'm a Kent Stater, but I, and I, I'm i proud of my alma mater. But hey, uh, yeah, yeah, I go to Purdue. I correct them. I say, man, I'm a Murray State grad. <laughs> uh, you know, Are you a Murray State grad? Yeah, I graduated from Murray State. I spent five years in Paducah, Kentucky. Oh, uh, great. And a lot of time down in Murray. Had uh, one of my closest friends was a pitcher at Murray State. He was, um, uh, he was one of the uh, kids from uh, oh, the great baseball program, um, 
Well, the Schreiber, what was Schreiber's uh, the, the father's Le- name? Up in Laporte? Yeah, Laporte. Yeah, this guy was from Laporte. Was a real, Brad Green was his name, left-handed pitcher. He went to Murray State. Did he, did he play for Johnny Reagan? I don't know. Yeah, I'm probably. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, 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 probably. But he's, you know, Brad's 85 years younger than me, probably 65, something like that. But Yeah, he would have played for Johnny yeah, Reagan then. Yeah, he would probably, have played for Johnny yeah. Reagan. Yeah, but he played it. Yeah, he played at Laporte. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, and we used to always have the basketball regional at Murray mm-hmm. Gym, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, race or like race. Yeah, race or race. <laughs> so, Coach, where where did you grow up? Where was your childhood spent? Well, I grew up in the Bahamas. You know, I'm an American citizen, but I grew up in the Bahamas. And uh, I was educated there for my formal education. Then I came to the U.S. as a student athlete and um, met my wife, and the rest is history. So you came from the Bahamas and then went to Murray? Yes, went to Murray. Okay. Yeah. And when so – when you were deciding on where you were going to end up, what, what was that process like? <laughs> well, I signed with the, uh, with the University of Missouri Columbia at the time, out of high school, to run track. And um, at the time, the coach there was name is his name was Bob Teals. He had an assistant there by the name of Roger Grutus, who really recruited me. And um, just before we, you know, it was time, you know, Coach Gruden, Coach 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 Teals was was dismissed for whatever reason I don't know. And um, we got out of the out of the MLI and I ended up at Murray State University and um, I thought that was I, at the end of the day that was the best that, however it went down it worked out well for me and what were your events there I was a hurdler jumper okay. I was a blister guy yeah. okay so let me throw a story at you real quickly in the uh, mid 1960s I went to a high school called Warren Holland in Northeastern Ohio and we had a we had a young man that uh uh, was a student at our, univers- or at our high school who uh, was taken uh, aside by a track coach and uh, I actually ran one time with him uh, as an 8th grader and I think he was a 10th grader or a 9th grader or a 10th grader in a junior high meet in Warren, Ohio and he was really running against some friends that were playing at this East Junior High School and um, he had just started track and it took him a while to, you know, catch on to what he was doing. But I remember one of his very first races, and this teacher and coach decided to run him illegally as a sophomore in a junior high event because he wanted to give him the opportunity to compete. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched the race, and this kid uh, took off and just burned everybody for about half of the it was an 880 or yeah it was which one two rotations is yes, 880 right? so he makes the first rotation like he might be the best runner in world history and then he veers off to inside the track and doubles over and and uh, regurgitates and then had several of his buddies from the other team come over and start to mock him a little bit i witnessed it and uh, that was the end of that story. Uh, two years later, I believe, and I'd, I'd have to check. I, I meant to check this last night, and I should have, Lonnie, but I think he won four events, two hurdling events and two sprinting events in the Ohio State champions and championships and big school class. And I think we finished second or third in the big school class based on his four Number ones, but his name was Willie Davenport. Yeah, <laughs> one, of, one of the greatest hurdlers in the in the history of the yeah. sport. Yeah, and uh, he went on, of course, and I think it was 1964, 68, mm-hmm. wherever it was, to win his first gold medal. And he he actually spent uh, four 
different Olympic years as a as a hurdler yeah. was running event. And you and I had that discussion one time, and you were telling me one of the one of the throwers had been in more Olympic games, but. I think as a as a track member, I think Willie was in as many as there there was, maybe four times. I think he was an Olympic hurdler. He had quite a bit of longevity in the sport, you know. I mean, yeah. he was he was very durable. And in those days, you know, coaching education was nowhere near what it is now. And um, for him to endure, you know, you know, there's no such thing back then as athletic training. Yeah, you, know, you got hurt, you yeah. you did what you had to do. You know, put and, some ice on. Put some ice on it. If, yeah, know, that's true. You know, yeah, it really is you true. Wrap it up, and then you feel better. Good. Let's go. Yeah. You know? So for him to endure, you know, four or so Olympics. So you, you know, would remember. Uh, so you would remember Willie because uh, you're a hurdler. So. That's cool. I, I thought I, you I, know, those were guys when you're young. You study. You know, you, you know, we would we would have you know the little eight millimeter reels, and you'd see try to see what they were doing. Uh, you know, and, and try to mimic it so that you would try to be as good as they were. But the reality was they, they were just more talented. I have one other story to add, too, from my hometown of Warren, Your first Ohio. one was very good, by the way. I was very nervous of where that was going. <laughs> I thought that I was afraid that was going to fall flat, but, and but it was I, a home run. I want so, to mention one so other you guy. Get an, you I get want, another one. I want to mention one other guy from my hometown that also was a Olympic hurdler in hoping. In other words, he was in a position to try out and would have made it, and I don't know why he didn't go on to become one, but was uh, Prancing Paul Warfield, a born Harding High School, uh, who ended up, of course, in the Hall of Fame in football. But he was a really good uh, hurdler in, in high school, and it looked like he was going to you know, be a, an Olympian, and for whatever reason he wasn't, but he turned out to be a pretty class athlete as it was. Well, about 16, 17 years ago, I was an intern at Kansas, and I okay. did track and field in the sports information office. Okay. And so um, I was involved in the Kansas Relays that year mm-hmm. quite a bit, and Kansas has a pretty historic uh, program as well. A, a lot tradition. of Yeah, a lot of great uh, distance runners. Al mm-hmm. Order was mm-hmm. the Olympian. I was the thrower. That yeah. and I were talking about through the uh, discus and four Olympics. And uh, Will Chamberlain, another crossover athlete, at one point was, I think in those days it was the Big Seven was the conference, but he was the Big Seven high jump champion. And I remember... How about long jump? Did he do long jump, I wonder? Well, I don't know if that was even an event back then, but I know that in the media guide I would put together, I, I, I went down to the archives in the basement of some building and I found this high jump photo of Wilt. Mm-hmm. And I made sure that got in the media guy because I thought that was so cool that That's you know awesome. at one point he was a, a high jumper like that. So a um, lot of uh, see, we're not void of track stories. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not one dimensional line. So when I when I was at Kansas, the Kansas Relays was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So now as you guys as you guys schedule and you go to meets throughout the year, um, when I was doing it, it was uh, Drake relays were big, uh, Penn relays were big. Mm-hmm. What are some of the marquee events? that you guys compete in year in, year out. Are those still big events? They are. You know, Drake and Penn are the granddaddies of them all. You okay. Know, in terms of collegiate, you know, uh, relay competitions. KU relays is it's a very, very competitive meet. Um, um, but we try to get to the Texas relays, Florida relays. For us being in the Midwest, you know, my my attempt is to get the kids, the young people down south or west where where we at least have an opportunity to compete in, in, in some decent weather. Mm-hmm. You know, for us... The weather the weather doesn't break here until late April, early May. Um, but if we get down south in March, you could be in eighty degrees. You know, you get out right. west, 
March, early March, early May, you, you, you get an opportunity, early April, you, you get an opportunity to compete in some decent weather. So really, in, in respect, we're chasing weather. Right. You know what I mean? To give the kids an opportunity to perform. The, the downside about having a ballistic program or a speed-based program is you got you to gotta find weather. You, they don't sprint well in, in cold weather. And so we go places where it might be really, really rainy, really, really wet, really cold, and then I have to make a decision at that point. Do I risk putting a young man or woman out there to get hurt just because we're here? Or do we just run the events where we can get away with it in that type of those type conditions? For example, we went to Drake this week, this past season, or this season, and it was 38 and rainy. It was raining, man. It was like a monsoon there. Wow. And, um, but we couldn't we, we couldn't go two weeks before the Big Ten before the Big Ten championships without competing. So, you know, I had to hey, we're gonna have to suck this one up. You know, like I tell them, if we go to, to California, if we go down to Florida, if we go to Texas, and it rains and it rains and it's cold, we gotta go. Yeah, because we came here with the right intention. So to give you an opportunity to compete in, in what I call um, athlete friendly conditions, but if the weather is bad, we just gotta warm up real intense and and make it happen. We'll limit them. We'll watch them real carefully. You know, but for the most part, you know, we try to get to those. We, 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 I think we've been well represented at those in those events. Let me ask a question, too, about uh, the nature of the sport because track and field, <clears throat> like uh, golf, we talk about it being a team sport at the college level. But, of course, you know, it's individuals doing their particular thing, then with the result going to a team-oriented finish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, so I would ask... How does the team structure work? How does, uh, you know, is it because you're not all, I, I'm sure you got X number of people that are rooting all the time, but I mean, how does, how does the team unit fit together in a track and field club? Let's look at it like this. Let's, let's use the Big Ten since that's the elephant in the room, okay? Um, the Big Ten, the Big Ten championships in, in cross country, you, they allow you to race seven. Five score, two displace. Okay, um, so you in cross country, the lower the score, the team score, the faster you're running. A perfect score is 15 points. Okay, um, so the lower you get to 15, closer you get to 15, nine times of the tenth, your, your your young men and women in cross country are running very well. Um, in track and field, you know, the higher the score, the better. So with the Big Ten, we have limitations. It's an old, in my mind, an old rule, a Paleolithic rule. Where as a high school rule, where you only can compete four persons per event, per institution, okay? Um, but you have a 34, 32 cap that you can travel, you know? Um, so what you do, to answer your question, if if you're going to go four per event, you would try to find, if you, let's say we use the 400 or the 440. We'd try to find up, we'd bring our best four 440 guys or gals to the meet. And we're going to try to get as many of those four to the finals to get it on championship day at the scoring opportunity. Um, but if you think about it, there's 39 points per event. If you go 10, 8, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, it's 39 points. You're trying to get as much of that. You're trying to get a bigger bite as that as you possibly can in that one event. So there, sometimes we will send someone out. If we had, like, for example, let's use the 400. We had three, three young women in the final this, week, this past weekend. We sent one out, and it's going to sound real bad, a sacrificial lamb. You take the pace out, people are going to chase. They're going to get to 300, and they're going, they ain't going to have the, the energy. The, you know, there's no more, ta- no, no, more, no more gas in the tank. And then the other two come and run home. 
you know what I'm saying? So now, all in the mile, we might send a young man out and he's gonna burn the first 800 meters of the mile, but the field doesn't know that, so they go behind him. And sometimes we will send a, a stud out there to do that, so they think he's a stud, he ain't coming back to us, so we gotta go with him, and the other guys just sit off the pace. So a lot more strategy well, than yeah, probably yeah, we yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And then when, they, when they're fighting, the other guys still got you know energy stores that they could they could they could call on and now now do you do you i mean you have to get buy-in from that sacrificial lamb so to speak yeah, so is yeah, so yeah. i mean is that good i think like one of the things larry was probably alluding to is just the the dynamic like you're individual but yet yeah we're celebrating need, as a team I mean, you need we, camaraderie we do to we get do. it done yeah. even though you're competing individually you know, we we tell them we tell them with the events we say hey if you're if you're a sprinter you do your job you know if you if you're a jumper, you do your job. If your job is, is if you're if you're a horizontal or vertical jumper, that's your job. Do your job. You know, I said at the end of the day we let the chips fall. But if you do your job, we're gonna be okay. You know, I you know one my, my guy my fraternity brother, he's a Navy SEAL. Um, he's a retired Navy SEAL now, but he used to tell me when I talked to him, I said, Victor, I said, What well, what was your objective out there? He said, Man, you do your job when you're in the field or people die. He said, that's all you think. You, you look to the man on your left, you look to the man on your right, and say, I'm going to put my life in your hands. You put my life in, you know, my, you put your life in my hands, and we make sure we go home. I said, it sounds like a line from a movie. He said, it might, but it's the truth. You know, so you do your job. If you don't do your job, we come back, you know, holding our tails between our legs, like, oh, it was a good fight. But right. but if we do, the, if we execute the job, you know, you, you, at the end result is, is, is usually... Something that will make you smile. Well, you've uh, you've certainly done a done a good job in your in your short time here. I know um, you've got this uh, program kind of on the ascension, and um, it's that. been it's been really cool to see. I know uh, some of the videos and social media things that come out, um, some of the the talks you give your team pre race and, and pre meet, um, really cool stuff. And and we're we're big fans of you here in basketball. So keep well, doing what you. you're doing. You're thank uh, you. you're helping to uh, elevate the whole whole department. So want to get on to the final four now. These are four questions that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast. So okay. no no pressure here, coach. <laughs> okay, so uh, what's your go to music of choice? Gospel. So, so when you're, how often do you listen to that? Is it in the car? Is it nonstop or in is the it just car, when you nonstop? You know when I'm going to competition, it keeps me calm. You know because I figure the kids they feed off my energy, so it, it keeps me calm. So are, are you, if you, jazz. so are you apt to get a little uh, agitated or a little? I get a little riled up. <laughs> <laughs> I get a little riled up. I do, especially on championship day. Yeah, I could see that. So that's what. So would, would you listen to that before before me? Yeah, yeah. So in the hotel room, you're getting ready to get yeah. on a bus. You're gonna. Yeah. You got that going. Yeah. Okay, I like that. All right. Um, what is the what is a, a book recommendation from you, or maybe the last good book you've read? Well, I'm reading right now um, um, Malcolm Gladwell um, uh, Outliers right now. Um, I've read a couple of his books. He's got one called um, uh, David and Goliath. The other one's called uh, What the Dog Saw. But right now, the book I'm reading is Outliers, and it's outstanding. Is that about elite people in their fields? It's about you know finding the right athlete at the right time, how things happen to fall into place. He uses this uh, ana- analogy of of kids being born at a certain time in the year, you know, and how they hold them back. He used, he used the sport of hockey, ice hockey. Yeah, I remember Canada, reading that. Yeah, you know, in Canada as an example of how they find the the one, 
you know. And then he he he, he fast forward to someone like Bill Gates and saying that uh, he he just stumbled across you know the computer world. Well, that isn't the case, according to the book, according to Malcolm Gladwell. Bill Gates and his friends in high school were sneaking off to go program at his high school when it wasn't even sexy to be doing that. When he, when he was a youngster and then his parents, his mother and father, being a part of the Parents Parent Teachers Association actually um, um, donated computers. So Bill Gates, was, Bill Gates was programming way before it was really popular. And so now fast forward to Bill Gates now at 25, 30, 35 years old. He understood where the world was going before that in, in technology and he cornered the market. Do you find yourself reading a lot of things that help with recruiting? Yes, sir. I, I, don't, I read that type of stuff, but I would be very honest with you. I, the book that I spend most of my time in is, is, is the Bible. You know, I don't have, you know, that leisure reading is usually when I'm done studying the Word, but, but, but for the most part, you know, I read like, I, I read things that, that would edify me. I don't just read things just to say, oh, I'm well read. You know, that's right. for the intellect. Um, you know, I'm not that guy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it, that's more for a guy like me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that guy. Uh, oh, right, oh, right, oh, right, 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 Lonnie. You yes, look at me. For you, for you, yes, exactly. for you, just exactly. for you. You know, but to me, I, I, everything I need, I find in Word. So I study the Word out. You know, my wife just asked me a question the other day. You know, and it, it real. I'm studying it out, but it really blew my mind. It really has got me in a place of research to give her a real. Um, she said, a mother asked her the question. You know, and about the Word of God, and I'm really researching it, trying to to give my mother-in-law a pertinent response, because if 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 I don't, it will somewhat be contradictory. So I'm I told her, I said, give me some time, let me search it out, and I'll get back with you. <laughs> you know. Well, I wish that Larry and I could help you in some regard, <laughs> but yeah. but that is uh, not our strong suit, so we we can't help you there. Um, okay, third question is, what profession other than a track coach? If you could just wave a wand and do without any training, what would you like to do? I think I would probably, maybe in the medical field. Really? Yeah, maybe in the medical field, yeah. I went to college, I was a pre-med major, and then I woke up one day and I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, this is what people expect me to do. And I remember calling my good friend, I was just telling Calvin Williams' wife this the other day in the weight room. And uh, I called him. He's a gynecologist back in the Bahamas now, my best friend. I said, Dana, man, I, this pre-med thing, man, I, I don't want to do this. And he was like, for real? I was like, yeah. And so, of course, I got a degree in the social sciences, went on to be a GA at South, then Southwest Missouri State University. And start, got my coaching started there. And uh, um, um, now he's a, a doctor, and he has this heart desire to be a coach. <laughs> he, he wants to walk away from the profession. He said, "Man, if you, if, if if a position come open, would you consider hiring me?" I said, "And then have your wife Lisa kill me?" I said, "No, I ain't doing that. I'm not gonna do that." You know, you know um, my I was talking to a group of uh, uh, Christian kids the other night at St. James, and uh, and I brought up the story of how I started as a nine year old, and 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 just staying true to that from the time I was nine years old until I became what I wanted to become and mm -hmm. then tell them that 50 years later it was the greatest decision in my life. But my dad was a doctor. He was an optometrist. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was an older man. I was adopted. He was 44 when I was adopted. So mm -hmm. he was in his 60s when I was in high school. And so if, if you looked at the natural inclination there. Mm -hmm. He was about ready to quit practicing when I would have been able to get a degree right. and take over his practice, which right. would seem to be the logical way for this family to go. And I, and I pointed out that my father 
from the time that I said, Dad, you know, I want to be like Jimmy Dudley or Bob Neal or, you know, Dick Enberg or somebody like that. And he always, man, I mean, always stood by me. You know, he never said, you know, you should be a doctor. No. And uh, so that's really something because a lot of times, and, and I came to the decision finally. I wavered only once, and that was when I was in my young 20s after I came out of the Army. And I thought, you know, hey, coaching would be, you know, I'd like to coach. And, but nah, I'll stay with broadcasting because obviously I'll make a lot more money in broadcasting. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I, I think we fall into our calling. I think that some people are fortunate enough to fall into our calling, into their calling. You know, um, um, I think sometimes we see the glamour of being say, being called an engineer or a doctor or, or whatever, you know, but I think if you spend time and just ask God, hey, what is my purpose? He'll figure, he'll, he will use you in that way. And, that, and I think, you know, I remember praying that prayer in college in, in my room, in my dorm room and asking, Lord, what is my purpose? I don't, I don't want to just be here. And I was 19 years old, you know, and, um, and of course I didn't go to, the medical route, I, you know, everybody was at friends that were going to medical school, and I was looking at them somewhat envious, but saying that I should have stayed, I should have stuck it out, and probably could have toiled and and get there. I could have toiled and got there, but 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 I believe that when you're in your calling, there is nothing, there's no toiling in what you do. Whatever your hands touch, it blows up. You know what I mean? Because that's what I call your Bethesda, your place of outpouring. I think. If you're a coach, if you're a basketball coach, you're a track coach, you're a doctor, you're an engineer, if that's your calling, whatever you do is going to work because that's what you was gifted to do. And you probably don't get up and go to the office and feel like you're going to work. No, I don't. You feel like that's yeah. just what you're supposed to do. I told my sons, you know, I said, hey, man, don't do what you think is going to make you money. I said, do what you love to do. I said, if you do that, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, and I said that the other night, too. I said, Gabby Bell, my great friend Gabby Bell, I was doing two games on Thanksgiving Day once in the early 1970s. And I turned to him and I said, Gabby, it's the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Thanksgiving Day, I'm not with my family. I'm calling two basketball games. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? I'd do this for nothing. He went, oh, no, oh, you didn't say that, did you? He's in his 40s. Oh, you didn't say that, did you? Don't, hey. Don't ever say that because if you say that, there's going to be someone that's going to hire you that's going to hear you say that, and they're not going to pay you. You understand? But, you know, but I, I also think, too, though, if, if, if you've got a gift and you work the gift God has given you, money will follow it. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah. Money will follow it. If yeah. you work the gift, money will follow it. I yep. really believe that. Okay, uh, last question of the final four. What is something that nobody knows about you, or at least very few people know about you? Hmm. Yeah, I, I live my life pretty open. I don't think I... Yeah, let me think. That's a very good question. Um, now, remember, like everybody to, we've had, how many shows? 18, 19, 20? This is 20. Number 20. Everyone's like answered this one, Lonnie. Every like single person. If there's anything that people don't know, maybe the members of my team know because I've done it for them a lot. I cook. I love to cook. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, yeah, you're talking yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. Right. There ain't too much, yeah. I, there ain't too much yeah. I can't cook. You know what I mean? I love to cook. He's any he's specific loved. cuisine? Caribbean, but American oh, cuisine. Oh, well. that would be now. Yeah. That would be cool. I yeah. think now. Close and I. Close is a big cook, and I like to cook as well. Um, so we talk a lot when we're on the road during basketball season, and he reads cooking magazines a lot. And so he'll point out, "Hey, look at this dish," and we'll you know we'll talk he, about he's it. He's far ahead of me on that one. <laughs> so, but the the but I think of all the stuff we've talked about that he's either cooked in his kitchen or I've tried. I don't think. 
Caribbean is really we've that's probably the one area that we haven't. No, really no, no, that's true. Dove that's into. very true because I think it's you know it's, there's a lot of specialty stuff. A in lot there. of spices, spices, yeah, and, seasonings, yeah. Yeah. And I love like a good yeah. jerk chicken. Oh, oh, it's very oh good me stuff. too. That's good stuff. Me too. You know, curry, we cook curry goat, curry chicken. Do you? you know? Yeah, you yeah, know that's um, cool. In my family, we we do a lot of things. That we cook peas and rice. You know, we just. We, but like I tell my my wife is an excellent cook, but she hates cooking. She she's an excellent cook, but so I you know um, I tell her, I said I cook. The first eighteen years of my marriage, I did eighty percent of the cooking. I said, but the issue is you're going to have to eat what I cook. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cook what I like. Yeah. You know? So I remember one, one day she said she was going home with my middle son, Isaiah. She said, well, I'm going home to cook. He said, I don't want to eat that. <laughs> so she was like, Isaiah, why? I like my dad's cooking. I don't like your cooking. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so so I felt bad. I said, Isaiah, your mother cooks well. I do. I know she does. But I like your cooking better. So for 18, the first 18 years of our marriage, for, I won't say first 18, first 15 years of our marriage, I did most of the cooking. Have any of your children taken an interest in cooking? All of them can cook. I taught them all how to that cook. That is, yeah. wow. That's they great. Can, they, can, they, can, they can hold their own if, if they ever found themselves in a situation, they can hold their own. But that, that, that's, I think that's cool too in that I grew up and my, I was around my mother a lot who cooked a lot and was a very good cook. And I always thought it would be sad if my kids don't, my kids are still pretty young, mm-hmm. but I want to teach them that mm-hmm. because I feel like you want to pass things down. Every every family's That's got my mother did. certain recipes. Yeah, yeah. And I've always thought it would be a shame for those to get lost. Right. And so I think that that's a cool thing, yeah, especially if they're cooking some of the yeah, stuff that yeah. you've taught. My mother my mother did that with me and my brothers. We had to stand in the kitchen on Sundays after church when she's wow. working and we had to watch. And um, when I met my wife, you know, one of the things she was like, so you can cook. I said, yep. So you can clean. You know, she came. My house was pretty clean. Checking the boxes there. You know, she's she like, okay, like, this guy's all right. Like, you know, was, so I told her, you know, she said, so what are you looking for in a woman? I said, just stand, just stand on my side and support what I'm doing. Because I, I can clean, I can cook, I can iron, I can wash, I can do the things. A lot of guys can't do that. I said, I just want someone who... who, who oh, no, 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 no. When I grew up, you weren't expected to you do know that line. You know, you don't, you don't, know. I just want someone to stand, stand outside of me, love me for who I was, you know, in my, in my, my imperfections, whatever issues I might have had. But I, but I can do what I had to do. So and so we, we that's something we both we both have a passion for now. So I had like I had a, uh, you know my mother was a terrible cook and so <laughs> seriously you that's would, the first time I've ever heard oh that. I mean horrible and you would I mean my dad who loved her to death and we'd sit there at the dinner table and we'd have this like dried up calves liver with no onions nothing <laughs> and they'd be sitting on the plate there like. Now, she's been gone since 1977. So, Mom, don't, I hope she's not listening right at this moment. I hope she's not tuned in. But anyway, so you have this, so you have this dried up thing there. And I don't know what the side was. It might be dried beets or something. But to be there, and I'd just be looking at it. My dad would like, oh, just flying through this thing. And then he would always say, Catherine, boy, that was really good. And I'm, you know, I'm seven years old and my head's going, is this guy out of his mind? <laughs> How long were your parents married? Long time. That's why. He knew, he knew to make sure Mama felt good about, oh, her, about oh, everything. But she never said to me, "Come stand by me and watch me cook," because if I did, I never. What happened to me, Lonnie? And I know you won't you won't appreciate this, but after my thirteenth divorce. I finally decided after I looked at all of those women I was with, all wonderful women, and all really good cooks. I missed all that food, and I said one day, I was in my mid-40s, 
I sat there one night and I said, you know, I miss this and I miss that and I miss this and I miss that. The only way I'm ever going to get that again is if I learn how to make it. Yeah. That's how it started. Yeah. And, you know, that's 25 years ago. So yeah. then, And I learned how to make every one of those dishes. Yeah. And thank goodness for them, you know, they said they shared it with me. You know, they didn't say, you know, put a half a cup of uh, arsenic in there, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's how it all started for me. But that's a cool thing. I mean, for a family or a couple to do. To I agree. Get, be in the kitchen yeah. and spend time together and doing yeah. that. That's, a, that's, that's really good stuff. So. Well, Coach, I want to thank you. It's been great no, having you on. Thank you for having me. I um, appreciate that. And nice continued success. Yeah. You've okay. got uh, uh, future events coming up, including the National Championships, yes. which is in, I think you said, Eugene, Oregon. Eugene, Oregon, yes. So we will obviously travel a lot of athletes to mm-hmm. that. And uh, just, you know, best of luck and keep the program going. We're all behind you here and really big fans of what you're doing. Thank you kindly. I appreciate you guys. God bless. Okay, that's episode 20 here of the Purdue Basketball Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, be curious, be informed, and be well.